Welcome to the East Traumacast. This program was brought to you by the Educational Resources Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Now, on to the TraumaCast. Before we get started, I'd like to say thank you to Hemonetics for their generous and unrestricted grant for the Educational Resources Committee and TraumaCast. I'm Lauren Judas, an acute care surgeon at West Virginia University. Thanks so much, uh, everyone, for being here. My name is uh, Tatiana Cardenas, and I will be a moderator for today's burn plasma-based resuscitation trauma cast. Uh, and it would be great if all of our esteemed experts could introduce themselves. I'm in Austin, Texas at uh, Dell Medical School at UT. Hey, hi, I'm Tina Palmieri, and I'm at uh, Shriners Children's Northern California and UC Davis. And hi there, I'm Jennifer Gurney. I'm at Brook Army Medical Center and the Institute of Surgical Research Burn Center in San Antonio, Texas. I'm Robel Bayena. I am at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Wonderful. Thanks again for, for being here. Let's just, let's jump right in. So let's just kind of start this conversation about plasma-based resuscitation on the history and the use of it in the past. Um, and how it's reappeared uh, in recent times. Okay, um, since I think I'm the oldest person on this call, I might as well get started. Um, actually, plasma resuscitation and burns has been around since like the 1920s, 1930s. It's been around for a really, really long time. And it was initially used uh, in the early world wars and it, its use was abandoned, not because it wasn't an effective colloid, but because they had a really high incidence of hepatitis um, in association with fresh frozen plasma administration. So that was one of the rate limiting factors. And the other one was uh, reactions to the plasma. So it plasma is a resuscitated fluid fell out of favor uh, for a long time. Uh, and that's why it didn't appear in the early burn resuscitation formulas. And you know, Tina, I also think that it got a bad rap because during World War II, and when they were using a lot of plasma, it was all pooled plasma. So you would get a unit of plasma and you might be getting it from 400 donors. So your risk of any type of infectious disease or any type of reaction was so much higher. So you know, that was the yellow hepatitis that was, uh, that was associated with plasma administration. So it didn't just fall out of favor. It was, it was uh, you know, seen as something that was really bad because people were getting sick from it. They didn't have the testing. And since it was pooled, and then around the same time, I mean, I think history is really important in the, uh, in the 60s and 70s, all the research that was being done on, a lot of it on dogs was looking at crystalloid and showing that, you know, you could do, you could resuscitate the interstitium essentially, or you could, you know, resuscitate uh, uh, burns uh, by giving crystalloid. And so I think that a lot of things kind of happened historically that really helped plasma fall out of favor and crystalloid fall in favor. But like Tina was saying, you know, it, it was when, when Beecher described the resuscitation from the largest uh, burns uh, or largest industrial fire, which was in Coconut Grove in Boston, it was plasma-based resuscitation. It was plasma and it was, it was interesting. I couldn't figure this out, but maybe, maybe Tina, you know, like they would mix it plasma 50% with normal saline. 
And I went back and looked at all those articles and I couldn't figure out why they were kind of like cutting the plasma, but uh, they, and they had good uh, clinical results as much as what's documented from that time. Yeah, just echoing what Jennifer and Tina said, um, you know, like really in the, starting in the 1950s, you see a precipitous drop in plasma being used uh, both in clinical practice and in any studies. So history is a huge piece of this, but then also the pathophysiology of why plasma is even considered and thought of um, with regards to the glycocalyx and what happens in burn shock. I think that's a hugely important point um, in plasma-based resuscitation uh, for burns. If, if y'all could comment a little bit on that, just to give us a better idea of the why for plasma, that'd be great. You know, I think that this is something that we've learned over time. And uh, there's certainly was a lot written about, about the endotheliopathy of trauma. And we owe that to researchers like Rosemary Kozar and uh, all of her partners that we're looking at. And I think, I think that Dr. Palmari has done some of that research as well, but like knowing that there's this endotheliopathy that develops and if endotheliopathy can develop from trauma, it can burn as a form of trauma. And, uh, and the question is, does crystalloid resuscitation make that worse? You know, and, uh, and so, so when plasma fell out of favor and there was a lot of uh, research that was going on with crystalloid and resuscitating the interstitium, uh, there, there wasn't anything better. It's not like hemorrhage, you know, it's not anything obvious that you can give to a burn patient. You know that they need volume, that they're intravascularly replete or intravascularly deplete and you have to give them something. And, uh, and so uh, crystalloid was absolutely the answer. And I remember, so I started doing burns after uh, 15 or more years of doing uh, general surgery and trauma. And I remember walking to the burn ICU and be like, wait a second, this is what the patients looked like when I was a resident and we were resuscitating all the hemorrhagic shock patients uh, with crystalloid. Why do they all look like this? And, you know, you get into this mindset that they need, and they do, they are, they absolutely need something to fill the tank because they're leaking it all out. And then it just makes you wonder, is this endotheliopathy of burn shock, is this you know, detriment to the interstitium uh, potentially making their burn shock work, worse if they extravasate fluid? Now you can give plasma to these patients and they still get incredibly swollen. It's not like the total answer. I mean, burn shock is really complicated, but um, it makes sense that if you can stabilize the endothelium and prevent the glycocalyx from being leaky and resuscitate the patient at the same time, that it's likely a better uh, solution to just crystalloid uh, fluids. Yeah, and the other thing to remember is that a burn is fundamentally different in that you've broken the cutaneous barrier, right? You've lost the epithelium. So unlike trauma where you're bleeding blood, right? It's intuitively obvious that you should give uh, a, a blood or a, or, or a colloid fluid and burns, actually the fluid that is leaking from the skin is not just crystalloid. It has plasma, it has albumin, it has essential proteins. And so by giving crystalloid, we were actually kind of oversimplifying what the patient's losing. We're not giving them back what they're losing, we're giving them back only a fraction of what they're losing. So I think that's part of the reason why plasma was initially started and, and why it still has merit in terms of that colloid oncotic pressure even maybe still play a role in that uh, resuscitation. Tina, I have got a question. I know that Tatiana's been asking the questions, but I'm just curious, you know, you really have um, 
you have the most uh, experience here. And, and why do you think that there's such a reluctance to embrace plasma? I mean, I found that at my institution. I don't know, Rebel, if you have the same thing in your institution, but like, it just seems like, uh, to me, it was, again, coming from another discipline and entering into Burns a little bit later in my career, it seemed so obvious, but like, it was not really embraced. And then, you know, burn patients can get so ridiculously sick. And if I was resuscitating one with plasma, it's like, oh, it must be the plasma, you know, uh, you know, they could get just that sick or even sicker if you're doing a crystalloid resuscitation. So what do you think the reluctance is to, for adoption of this when, you know, historically it's been written over and over again that a burn shock is a deficit of plasma, right? So, well, if burn shock is a deficit of plasma, it'd be kind of obvious that maybe that's what you give, but what are your thoughts on that? So it goes back, there was actually the historic conference where everyone agreed on the Parkland formula, which actually wasn't the Parkland formula. Um, the original formula actually did have some plasma in it, um, but there was an agreement made and this kind of got handed out over generations. So it became almost lore. And so people are reluctant to break the lore because it's lore, right? You know, you don't, you don't, you don't violate these basic tenets. Um, and it's supported also by, you know, when you first go to your blood bank and you say, well, I want an FFP drip, um, your re the reaction is going to be, oh, that's an expensive resource. That's a short resource for us. What evidence do you have that you need it? So the people met when they tried it with resistance from a resource standpoint from a cost standpoint and they didn't have the proof behind it to show so between that and the lore it became very difficult to get it started it needed science behind it in order to get it rejuvenated yeah you know i'd, I'd add that like that's a, that pairing is exactly correct there are pragmatic limitations and then there are dogmatic limitations just as there are with you know the rollout of say whole blood and in, in trauma um those things still like hold us back they're pricing issues, there's uh, uh, resource limitation issues that both contribute to this. And then if you, you know, if you step back away from burn and think about where the foundational data on uh, endothelial dysfunction and the glycocalyx comes, you know, around sepsis and trauma, like we know that disruption of the glycocalyx leads to superoxides and, and peroxides and radicals. And we also know that the, so like the injury itself, the initial injury, causes glycocalyx injury. But on top of that, we know that the glycocalyx and the endothelial surface layer in general is created and maintained in homeostasis with the actual components of the blood. So the fact that you are infusing anything other than blood, or at least, you know, blood components also continues to like worsen that injury. So it's not just that you are failing to recover it. Uh, it's that you are worsening the injury you know, by, by definition. So, you know, we, we don't treat every case of sepsis or every trauma patient with, uh, with plasma. And, uh, so it's a hard sell and burn also, uh, again, pragmatically and dogmatically, because it's hard to convince a, uh, blood bank to agree to that sort of thing. And to answer your earlier question about, you know, pushback in my institution specifically, I'll tell you that we only recently specifically instituted a uh, FFP drip uh, as a part of our burn resuscitation. Uh, and there was a lot of back and forth to get that because it is a limited resource and it's a especially limited resource right now in the you know tail end of 
COVID, uh, where blood and all of the blood components are in limited supply, I suspect everywhere. So we started out by talking about how it fell out of favor in the 50s and 60s. When did FFP as resuscitation come kind of back into favor and how accepted is it? What are you guys talking about in national conferences? What do you think is kind of the national adoption of using FFP for resuscitation? It's not back in favor. I think it's really rare to uh, see FFP being used. There was a paper uh, that came out of, I think, Hartford, Connecticut, like in 2011. It was the Evans formula. It was, wasn't even published like in a really high, uh, like well-read journal that they were resuscitating with plasma. But when you ask around, I mean, that's one thing that I also find challenging about burns is that there's so much heterogeneity in burn management. It's not as nearly standardized as trauma is at least in, in my experience. So I don't think it's totally back in favor yet. I think that there's pockets of uh, centers and people that are interested in doing it, but that overall it's probably hasn't been nearly as adopted as something like whole blood has been in the trauma and burn community. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, there's pockets, um, even the crystalloid colloid argument in burns rages on, not, and let alone which one. Right. So you, there's potential for albumin. So albumin is still a colloid that's being investigated. And as is FFP, there's two randomized prospective trials for resuscitation and burns. One's evaluating FFP and one's evaluating albumin. Um, my dream had been to get both investigators together and do it all in one, but didn't quite work out. So we're going to get it piecemeal. Um, but the, even the colloid crystalloid argument is not resolved after how many years we've been resuscitating. Tina, that's a, a, a great segue into our next question is what are the pros and cons of crystalloid versus colloid? I mean, it, like you said, there's only pockets of institutions. Rebel, like, like your institution, we recently uh, in 20, November of 2020, we came up with our burn resuscitation guideline to include colloid um, here at, in Austin. Um, and then greater than 40% burns, we are strict FFP. For me, in my mind, it just, it makes sense. Tina, what are the pros and cons of the use of crystalloid versus, um, I mean, let's just take a step back in colloid, not even plasma. So the original arguments against colloid is that there's a huge capillary leak that accompanies burn injury. And that was what the edema was attributed to. This huge capillary leak, all the fluid goes into the interstitium. And if you give albumin in particular or any other colloid, it just leaks right out into the pulmonary space and causes downstream pulmonary edema and pulmonary dysfunction. And so colloids, again, have had been on and off and on and off again um, for, that, for that reason is the fear that you're going to exacerbate pulmonary edema. Um, and I think it's overstated in reality. We've been cheating with colloids for many years, at least at our center, and everyone does it quietly, but no one did it out loud. Um, and I think that that pendulum is swaying and it's, it's going back towards colloid. And I suspect we're going to end up with a mixed resuscitation, but um, I think we're going to have to experience the extreme to realize where we need to go. Tina, the, um, the studies that showed a, that colloid gave you that lung water. I'm sure you guys know the literature better than I do, but it was the studies I saw were all animal studies and they were relatively uh, low numbers. And that, you know, when they were measuring the lungs, 
or the weight of the lungs after resuscitation of swine with either crisploid or colloid that their lungs were heavier if they were getting you know albumin and that I, I think a lot of the kind of the concern about it came from that and then you know I mean I think you give anybody any patient especially a burn patient who we know does have a capillary leak no matter what you're giving them their risk of, of pulmonary complications is ridiculously high so I haven't seen any really good and I'm sure I'm sure they're out there and I'm just showing my ignorance so I apologize for that but like you know looking prospectively if they have a colloid-based resuscitation versus crisploid resuscitation and looking at their pulmonary complications. Are those studies, have those been done? Um, not prospective randomized. There's lots of case series and you can get a case series to support any position. Um, and that's happened throughout the years. In reality, I think it's more how you use your fluids rather than what fluid. I don't think there's a magic bullet. You know, we always look for that one thing that's going to turn off the coagulat, the endotheliopathy that's going to reverse the problem. Whereas I think we really need to focus on how we're using the fluids because the formulas, they're a guidepost, but they're not, they're not particularly accurate. And how we use it and individualize it because every patient has a different uh, mix may be very important. You know, if, if um, like the way that I think about the argument pro college, and I, I would say specifically pro FFP, um, you know, it, it's hard to sell LR in the world today in, in general. But I'd say, you know, there are three things that I think about that are beneficial. One of them, you know, a bit banal is, is the idea of like volume expansion, necessary, completely reasonable, although you could make the argument for any number of heavy molecules that might do that job. Um, then the other two things that I think about from FFP, to a lesser extent, uh, albumin also, is that it's an excellent acid buffer. Uh, and a lot of these patients come in very acidotic. Uh, and then the third thing is really this, this question of the glycocalyx. So like, if, if you can find a single thing that already exists that covers all three of those, like it's, it's an easy argument to me to at least be inclusive of it in your resuscitation, if not you know, lean heavy into it. And, you know, the data remains murky or at least ongoing. And it also remains a, a place in like the state of science that is constantly called out as like where more data needs to be generated. Uh, so like it, it makes perfect sense that this is where we are. And it is frustrating when you look at the historical lens of this, that we're getting here, you know, 50 years after we'd already started after a substantial break. Um, but we also wouldn't know what we're, you know, what we're finding now, at least we wouldn't be, we wouldn't understand why it's doing what it's doing if we had not gotten foundational work in other fields. You know, I think, um, Jennifer, I think you were the one that brought up, uh, Rosemary Kozar's work, like, you know, looking at the endothelium under electron microscopy and, uh, you know, PCR stain, uh, PCR, uh, showing like syndicin one, like these things are things that were done outside of burn and now can make the argument for burn. Um, and, you know, it's a shame that we lost all this time, but I think, you know, thank goodness that we have foundational work to build on now. Like there is science here that is not necessarily in burn, but it's well done science. And I'll say now, a lot of those things have been repeated in, yes, in animal models, yes, in small series, but, um, you know, the shop lab at uh, MedStar has shown resuscitation with FFP can uh, actually like ameliorate the 
endothelial dysfunction in burn models. And that's hard to ignore. Now, in terms of incorporating uh, plasma into one's burn resuscitation, because it's such a, a big ask from a, a, a blood bank standpoint and, and just like y'all's experience, you know, it, it, took, uh, it took time to, to get this instituted. Um, how do y'all feel about starting to use it as a runaway resuscitation? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because there's two coins, there's two sides of the coin um, or two sides of that argument. It's, you know, runaway resuscitation, cat's out of the bag. It's already kind of too late. Patients have gotten a ton of volume versus, oh, well, maybe we can start to uh, ameliorate and catch up a little bit, um, you know, when we're getting to, uh, when things are getting pretty bad. I, I actually have some really strong thoughts about this because I think if you're at runaway resuscitation point and you're giving plasma as like a rescue, it was kind of like when we gave factor seven as a last ditch resort when someone was like dying from hemorrhage. And then it's like, oh, look, these outcomes are horrible. And you're giving it to them when they're already kind of pre-morbund. And, you know, I think that if you're going to make a difference with plasma, and uh, this was when we were talking about a, designing a plasma trial, I was working with Dr. Lee Cancio, who's the director of the Burn Center here, and uh, it's, it's, it, timing is probably matters a lot. And you know, giving uh, giving the plasma early before you start having more damage to the endothelium and the glycocalyx, and starting to kind of close down that known capillary leak that they get. Because you know, when you look at a burn patient and they've got and they've got delayed care. This is something that's also, I don't know if you guys have this clinical observation as well, but you get them eight hours out and they've gotten no resuscitation. They're like, they're not making urine and they're really sick, but not all, they're, they're not weeping from everywhere. They're not swollen. They're not like losing massive amounts of fluid. And then we start resuscitating them and that happens. And so they start, so, and that's obviously when they're volume down and, you know, burn shock and everything else, but it's our resuscitation. I think it's like, we have, we, it's this tool that we have that we absolutely have to use, but the tool is also making things worse. So I think that timing, you mentioned runaway resuscitation. If you're starting plasma, when you're 16 liters into a resuscitation, you're like, well, I want to slow down on my fluids. You're already set on that trajectory and plasma is unlikely, in my opinion, going to change that at that point, that if we're going to do plasma-based resuscitation, starting it very early on, and watching how the patient responds, I think is where we're gonna see the most clinical benefit. Yeah, you know, I'd say, so two things, like, first of all, I completely agree with that idea. Two things about that that I'd say are that, like we know from some, some of this is uh, Dr. Kozar's work, and then there are lots of other studies outside of burn that show this, that you know when some traumatic injury or, or sepsis or whatever starts to really damage your glycocalyx, those things start to peak at around two hours post-injury and continue, at least in burn, we know like out to like eight or 12 hours. Uh, so pair that with the, with the other point that all the studies that have shown the benefit of FFP at the level of the glycocalyx can't prove whether it's preventative or reparative or what. So, you know, if it's preventative and you're starting it, eight, 10, 12 hours, like when your resuscitation is already looking terrible, like you've really let the horse out of the barn at that point. So I don't know that you're getting the full benefit. Maybe you're getting some benefit, but you're not getting the full benefit when you're starting it 
that late. And I'll say, you know, we historically had done an albumin rescue sort of model, and we switched away both from the rescue model and from the albumin model kind of at once thinking exactly this, that like maybe we're just waiting too long. Um, now there are ongoing studies in this area. So, you know, I look forward to the results of those. Um, from a practical standpoint, if your institution doesn't do FFP resuscitation um, and you're trying to ease your institution into a new form of treatment, for, and, and using FFP at your institution, if you're not using it for resuscitation, it's an uphill battle. So what you have to do is set your definition of a runaway resuscitation much lower than what really is a runaway resuscitation. I mean, that's how you introduce it and you introduce it in a way where it can succeed. So you define a runaway resuscitation as you're approaching, you know, one and a half times the calculated volume of resuscitation to sneak it in, right? Or you even make it even lower than that. But that way you can sneak in a new type of therapy and have it have a chance to succeed. Because you're right, if you wait till the very end as a rescue, you're never gonna be able to prove to the administrative folks that it's helpful. But if you define those endpoints as you know them, because as, as people who are resuscitating a burn, you're the ones that know them the best. So you can take advantage of the potential for the glycocalyx uh, to heal. Then that's how you can sneak it into an institution, get a few successes under your belt, and then you'll be able to get your protocol moving forward. Otherwise, you spin your wheels a lot because you you don't have that proof yet. That is really, really pragmatic and practical. Really practical advice for getting something like this started is to know know your institution and set your threshold to optimize your success. Yeah, I mean, and that that does kind of follow the model that we did, which is to say that we do have a portion of our resuscitation that is a continuous strip of FFP, but early on, you actually get just a few units as if, you know, not even counted within your resuscitation, but almost like specifically for acidosis and for volume expansion early on. And then like you implement the longer drip later, but we, we um, could not necessarily get that built in upfront without without that. Taking advantage of FFP that people don't talk about too much is has antithrombin three. So if you are using heparin for anything, um, you know heparin's an, is an anti-inflammatory and it's also got some other properties. Um, it will actually enhance the efficacy of that agent. So there there's a lot of things. Uh, FFP is a very complicated, very cool uh, colloid for use that, that has a lot of potential benefits that we're just now starting to really get into. Well, you know, you, 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 I just want to say one thing about that because I, it has a lot of potential benefits, but I think there's like three levels of heterogeneity when you're looking at the patient and the product and the response, you know, so the patient like what if the patient is AT3 deficient or has had his factor five lied in, or, you know, like has some genetic, genetic something that might be affected by plasma. And then the, so heterogeneity of the patient, heterogeneity and variability of response to burn injury. I mean, like if we could predict how every patient would respond to burn injury, you know, that would be incredible, but there's a huge amount of heterogeneity with that. You sometimes just don't know what path the patient's going to take. And then the heterogeneity of the product of plasma 
because even though it is overall anti-inflammatory, it's like a dirty product and there's so many proteins. And so you take a patient with their genetic heterogeneity and you happen to match in the one in 200 times that type of plasma that they're gonna get. Because I have seen some things with plasma resuscitation where patients have gotten extremely hypercoagulable and it's like, what's going on? But we don't have the sophistication like to get rapid lab tests to see, is there a, a plasma patient or pl a patient burn response plus plasma kind of mix. So I think that there's a lot that we don't control uh, with burn resuscitation and that heterogeneity can benefit us, but it can also make things very confusing during the resuscitation. I want to back up a little bit for some of the early learners or people like myself who haven't done any burn resuscitation since they were resident. But can you tell us at your institutions, Robo, you started implying a little bit about your protocols. If you could give just a general um, overview, you have a patient comes in, um, how are you initiating your resuscitation? Sounds like Tina, you're doing mixed, uh, but what is, how are you guys doing it? Again, sort of leading back to the idea of uh, of the glycocalyx specifically, we know uh, that the magnitude of endothelial injury is sort of a you know correlates to the TBSA. Um, based on that, we have sort of two tiers above twenty percent, above fifty percent, where uh, you get a certain amount of FFP up front, and then you have a mostly still LR-based resuscitation in the first couple of hours, and then at a certain hour, meant to sort of correlate with the peak volume of resuscitation hours in the sort of eight to 12 window, you get eight hours of a mixed resuscitation, and then that tapers off, and then you go back to a, a LR-based resuscitation. Although, you know, there is the sort of provocative question underlying all of this, that in the era of studies where you are treating sepsis with zero ML of crystalloid, is there a pathway to that in burn? I don't know, maybe that's a bridge too far. We're certainly not there yet. All right, well, um, we've adopted the, we're almost at a minimalist approach to our resuscitations. You, you know, identifying the least amount of fluid that the patient needs, as opposed to focusing necessarily on, on the type of fluid. We're actually, we're in like three randomized trials right now, so all of our normal protocols are kind of randomized trials um, with crystalloid versus polyloid of different types. Um, so we'll see how they work out. Um, right now we, we are in an albumin trial, just looking at albumin as part of the initial resuscitation, comparing that to a crystalloid. Um, and we'll see how that goes. Um, but I've reached the point in my career where you know, you identify the patient that's getting too much fluid and you just stop the fluid. And um, understanding when to do that is almost as important as knowing when to start it. Um, so that has kind of altered the, my resuscitation paradigm. When you say, uh, Tina, you just stop the fluid. So you identify a patient with a runaway resuscitation and they're not making urine and you know, they're still requiring pressors. And for some reason we keep going up on fluids. You literally just turn off the IV fluids. Uh, not completely, but we'll dial it way back to just a regular yeah. sentence. What they've had yeah. is they didn't have a burn because you still need the carriers for all the drugs. So right. with a fluid rate about normal actually. But there's not that many runaway resuscitations. So 20% burn, you can probably give them anything and they should yeah. be fine. 
Um, it's the bigger burns. It's the 50, 60, 70% burns that they really are the ones that need that more personalized approach. Um, but a 20% burn, I bet you could get by with, with, very, with not very much resuscitation and have to work out just fine. Speaking about the 20% burns or you know, 20, even up to 30% burns, and I know this isn't what you guys totally want to talk about, but it is actually the way that our body makes plasma uh, is through enteral fluids. Have you guys uh, done anything with enteral resuscitation? Because you know, when you talk about a plasma deficit, so there's two ways to burn shock is a plasma deficit. You can either give the patient plasma or you can give their body a means to make plasma, which is through you know the absorption of plasma proteins and boom, plasma. Like that's how... That's my understanding of how plasma is made. It's not made by a specific organ, it's made by your GI tract and liver protein. So are you guys uh, considering or have you uh, any practice with uh, enteral resuscitation? Uh, we haven't formally used enteral resuscitation. We start tube feeding from the get-go. So you're in, you have a tube in and you're getting feeds and you're up to full feeds within a couple hours. Um, so we're sort of doing it, but not really. Um, the folks in, when they, they've had a couple of disasters out in, uh, out west on the Australia region where they used enteral resuscitation as part of their disaster algorithm. And they were able to successfully resuscitate some folks that way. Um, I think we're behind the, the power curve on that in the U.S. Um, we're kind of married to intravenous fluids and it's a hard leap for us. You know, I'm a military surgeon, and uh, so from a military standpoint, when we look at burn resuscitation and what we're going to need on the battlefield and just wait and cube, if you are going to have to bring 20 liters of fluid versus, you know, packets of WHO or resuscitation uh, packets, which you can mix with water and give enteral resuscitation. And I, I think that, you know, there could be, and not just for the austere environment or military environment, but I think it could uh, you know, really benefit patients if we did it right and could figure out the appropriate balance, say, of IV plasma and enteral resuscitation. And I think that that, you know, if we ever get there and understand that, that could be a way to really mitigate uh, burn shock and decrease the overall crystalloid that you're giving to patients. I'd love to take a step back Tina, you were talking about stopping fluid altogether, you know, in the patients who obviously fluid's not making a difference. So not making urine, not pressors, uh, uh, like what Jen alluded to. Um, the thing that we have struggled to define is the stopping point for these bigger 50, 60, 70% burns on our FFP um, or plasma, uh, strictly plasma resuscitation. When do you stop those and switch over to LR? Is it at a 24 hour time period? Is it at a 12 hour, 18 hour? Is it clinically based? We're, uh, again, we're, that transition off is a little difficult for us uh, to define. Yeah, the, the age old argument of when is resuscitation over? You know, when do you no longer need these agents? It's kind of like sepsis. The definition of sepsis has changed how many times? Every time, you know, it would theoretically change all the study results before it. And I think we suffer from that same, it's a fundamental question we should be able to answer. But we don't have a hard stop marker for the end of resuscitation. 
if you're a formula driven person, you go till you get to their maintenance, which is basically their evaporative loss plus their normal fluid requirement needs, right? That's the purist who says, once you get there, you're resuscitated. But I, I don't think it's that simple. Um, and I think it's one of the areas in, in, in burns. And I think in trauma too, it's not always easy to tell when you're resuscitated. Um, we haven't found a good, a great marker for it yet um, or a hard stop for that. So I think until we determine a definition of what is resuscitation and what, what, is, what is it, I think we're gonna have a hard time saying when to stop um, our colleagues. Yeah, I mean, agree, and you're right. I think that we sometimes uh, recognize it by seeing that we missed it a couple of hours ago, you know? Um, and uh, the other thing that I'd say is that this speaks to the, the weakness of the metrics we have for the resuscitation to begin with, like much less when it ends, like how are we doing in real time? Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, urine output remains the workhorse of this, but it's a sloppy metric when it gets right down to it. Um, and it's a metric that refuses to accept that, like, that can be different in different people. And also that there's pathology that, that is rampant in the world that will affect that metric substantially in a way that you can't really account for just by their TBSA or their age or their BMI or whatever. Uh, but all of those things play a part, certainly. So, you know, I find it frustrating in some um, like resuscitations when you are reviewing them and you're like, okay, you came within, you know, a hundred ML of your maintenance of your like, you know, resuscitation end, and then their urine output fell. So you started climbing up again. I'm like, surely this person you don't think is the same person that came in 18, 24 hours ago and had this burn and had no treatment yet. Like we can't treat them the same way now as we did then. We can't just say, oh, well the, you know, go up by 10% or whatever because their urine output is 28 instead of 30, you know, like that's, uh, that is frustrating. And I don't know what the fix is, especially because, you know, you're right. Uh, I, I am a prescriptivist and I want there to be a clear answer that like you can just math your way to, but um, that, is, that is not the case. Yeah, I don't think it can say anything more. I mean, it's multifactorial. You can look at urine output, lactate, if they've hemodiluted from, you know, if they were hemoconcentrated and just overall look at the patient. But uh, it, it would be nice if burn resuscitation ended at 24 or 36 hours. Boom, we're done. But it doesn't. I mean, every patient, that heterogeneity and patient response to thermal injury drives a lot of this. And, uh, and it, I, I think it's nice when you can start transitioning all your IV fluids, except for your drips to stuff going into the gut, you know, and really decreasing everything that you're uh, getting IV and see if you can get it enteral. I, I just, you know, I mean, we weren't meant to get all this fluid IV. I think we've really learned that from the trauma uh, experience and crystalloid resuscitation and switching to blood that, you know, that salt water is good for cooking pasta, but it's only, it has limited use when it goes in through the veins. <laughs> What do you think about, if I may ask a question, what are your thoughts about the role of whole blood in burn resuscitation then? You know, I, I mean, so they're not bleeding. And so giving them all the uh, red cells when they're already hemoconcentrated 
I think even from just a viscosity standpoint, I don't think it's practical. I mean, we have a hard enough time getting the blood banks to give us plasma. Can you imagine trying to get whole blood for burns? But, you know, um, I mean, obviously if it's a combined injury with trauma, that's different. But I mean, if, if burn shock really is a deficit of plasma, like Dr. Pruitt wrote about and people wrote about in the seventies and eighties when they were doing this burn shock, you know, you need to resuscitate the interstitial space. That was kind of one camp or it's a deficit of plasma then really we should be giving them, giving patients back plasma or a way to make plasma. And crystal A was just what we had and what some studies showed. But um, no, I don't think that whole blood will ever be adopted for burn patients that aren't bleeding. And I don't think it, you know, I don't think it should be. Yeah, I don't necessarily think it should be as a continuous treatment, but I do wonder if like a single, you know, transfusion might be beneficial both from an acid uh, buffering standpoint, because hemoglobin is very effective at that. And yeah, that's a um, great point. And from um, an expansion standpoint. So like not think again, like if you think of it, not as a resuscitative fluid, but as a medication that you're giving, I think there might be a role for it. Interestingly enough, um, before plasma, there was whole blood resuscitation for burns. I found a small paper. It's really, really old. And they were using whole blood in burn resuscitation at one time. Um, so, and they were effective. So, you know, it, 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 there might, there might be something to it. We don't know. You know, it makes me wonder because one thing that we judge is one of our markers for the end of resuscitation is do they hemodilute? Cause you know, you watch them get hemoconcentrated and I do do some enteral resuscitation. It takes them much longer to hemodilute and it makes everybody a little nervous that their hematocrit's going up the first four or six hours instead of starting to go down with resuscitation. But I wonder if you give whole blood since it's really a, uh, since hematocrit's just a percent, if you give whole blood, does that that probably would not make their hematocrit even necessarily go higher if you're also expanding their volume. I just, uh, you know, intuitively you think, oh yeah, their hematocrit would go up, but since it is an overall volume expander, maybe it wouldn't, maybe it wouldn't go up or give them any issues with uh, viscoelasticity or anything. What's on the horizon for burn resuscitation? We selected you guys as a somewhat biased group that would discuss the FFP as a resuscitation strategy. Uh, anything else out there in the works? I mean, um, liquid plasma, lyophilized plasma. Uh, I think that second one from a military application standpoint, or at least austere or remote environment standpoint might be you know, interesting. Yeah, as I said, there's the ongoing albumin trial, the ongoing FFP trial. Um, there is someone about just trying going to start a vitamin C trial, although uh, some of us have played with vitamin C and um, we'll see how that turns out. Um, but that's actually on the horizon um, uh, with some investigators. Um, and there's always still the blood filters people. Um, there's a whole new generation of blood filtration that's um, preparing to come on the market uh, to filter off the evil humors that uh, accompany sepsis, and I suspect will extend to burn resuscitation eventually, because that's one of the theories uh, behind some runaway burn resuscitation. So I can see any of those things, uh, plus artificial intelligence. Someone's going to create a system that monitors the electronic medical record fluids in, fluids out, and does it on an electronic platform and uses AI to try and 
individualized resuscitation. That is a long-term, I'd be surprised if somebody didn't try and pull that one off. I hope they do pull off the AI. You know, we use the burn navigator, which helps guide us, but we can even have runaway resuscitations with that. But I think the lyophilized plasma, uh, I, I also think a combination, you know, a combination of plasma and potentially enteral resuscitation. People are really scared to give anything to the gut of a burn patient, but if you're just giving sugar water with some base, some bicarb in it, it really is not, uh, you know, people worry about abdominal compartment syndrome and GI ischemia, but there's been some studies done in pigs that show that at least with the kidneys, that giving fluid through the gut increases renal perfusion. Uh, they haven't done that study to look at splanchnic perfusion, but, you know, I'd be interested in that because people do worry about enteral or, you know, gut ischemia, giving uh, enteral resuscitation early to a big burn patient. But I don't think there's any evidence that says that it causes it either. Yeah. I mean, we, we feed almost full feeds right from the get-go. Yeah. Similarly here, we yeah. feed them right away, although we don't build it into the specific resuscitation protocol. You know, the, so do you guys give gastric feeds or small bowel feeds? Yes, both. Yeah, because for, for enteral resuscitation, you know, it's really important that you're, especially if you're going up on volume with the WHO formula, whatever glucose bicarb formula you're using, uh, that you feed the stomach uh, and not the small bowel, because the small bowel doesn't have a chance to stay no, but the stomach does, you know. And so, uh, you know, if, if you're not tolerating it, you'll get massive gastric distension. And so monitoring that is important, but, but um, you can give for, at least for cholera, you know, they would give up to 20 liters a day for enteral resuscitation, totally different pathophysiology, different type of shock, lots of things that are different, but it does demonstrate a certain amount of feasibility to use the stomach and GI tract as a route for resuscitation. Yeah. And on a practical level, the more you delay, the harder it is to institute GI feeds. So if you continue with that motility, the earlier you get it started, the more likely it is. I mean, the only GI ischemia I've seen has been on patients who've been delayed presentation. So they haven't eaten, they haven't had anything in their gut for four or five days. And then you feed them and then they have the ischemia. Um, those are the main situations where we get gut ischemia, or sometimes with beta blockers. So it's one of the things you have to watch out with beta blockers is gut ischemia, uh, especially during resuscitation. And then the last thing I would say about any type of resuscitation, if we're, if we continue to learn one thing, and I mentioned earlier is timing, you know, time to when you start, whatever intervention you're starting, uh, plasma, uh, IV fluids, like everything, it's all about, you know, any type of vitamin C, Whatever it is, if you wait until burn shock is well set in, it's much harder to reverse that and to do a rescue as opposed to try and treat treat it up front. Yeah, and I'd, what I'd pair that with is also, you know, novel or maybe like better understanding of our resuscitation markers, especially if you know the regionalization of burn care has made it such that like some people simply are far away from the burn center when they are identified or when they are injured. And, you know, with maybe better metrics of resuscitation, we can start that resuscitation really in earnest earlier in someone else's hands, you know, if, if that has to be so that they're not, you know, getting either, you know, much less than they need or much more than they need. We can talk forever about the um, you know, variability of TBSA calculations in any, you know, between any two operators, but um, 
if we had better metrics, maybe we could uh, start this process earlier. My only other question um, in terms of how you guys start your resuscitation is formulas. What are you using? Patient comes into your trauma bay. They've got this burn. How are you determining what their initial resuscitation is in terms of CCs per hour um, right off the bat? For regular burns, if you're not starting plasma right away, which it is really hard to start it right away because you've got to get it from the blood bank and then you've got to always convince whoever you need to convince. And it seems like it's a new person every day. Um, but, uh, you know, I usually start with the lower formula with the Brook formula instead of the Parkland formula. We get a lot of patients here that have been transferred from far away and they either have gotten nothing <laughs> or they've gotten like, you know, I've given them two liters per hour. Oh, they're on the way. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. You know, so, so it just, it depends. And, but I usually start with the lower formula and then quickly just start watching, uh, you know, urine output and how they respond and then start communicating to try and get plasma. And then in terms of plasma, um, we do have a, a protocol now, but, you know, in starting it, I think you can start depending on the level of burn uh, about a unit per hour and then titrate that down and titrate your IV fluids down, you know, and, and if you can get to very minimal IV fluids and start turning the plasma rate down, but um, I've never given more than, um, than a unit an hour of FFP. Uh, we, uh, so very similar, um, including the difficulty in early, uh, like plasma infusion. Um, I'd say uh, that, you know, our resuscitation now includes a fairly um, homegrown or, or uh, like what seems, I guess, to the casual observer, like arcane system of using adjusted ideal body weight because we're trying to like, um, account for sort of like morbid and super morbid obese, um, burns and not getting just, you know, liters and liters of excess fluid. Um, but otherwise like very similar, we try and, uh, give a, a little bit up front, And then we do have kind of like a continuous run of, of, uh, plasma, uh, in the middle of the resuscitation, or at least I should say in the middle of the 24 hour run. Yeah, uh, we, we have a starting formula. We give it to our residents and then say, forget the rest. So you start the fluids and then you adjust based on the patient response. And actually the turning down of the fluids is very aggressive. So um, we try and get the fluids down as quickly as possible. And then we give them the goal of their evaporative loss plus their normal maintenance. This is where you want to go and this is when you stop. And so, and it's a nurse-driven protocol. So people, the nurses can keep dialing it down. Uh, and if it's, if it's not dialing down like it should, then, then it gets escalated. I just awesome. wanted to say one thing about that. You know, that's a, so our, our nurses have a tendency to dial up the fluids. There is a culture, I think, in each burn center. And that's kind of with the variability and, and, and sometimes a culture Trump's strategy, <laughs> you know, and so, uh, you know, it might be the intent to get fluids done or whatever, but if your culture is like a culture of, you know, give more crystalloid, it's hard to change that. So that was really interesting when you said that, Tina, that the, it's a nurse driven protocol and that they're always dialing it down and they're notifying you if they're not dialing it down. I think that that's a great culture for burn center resuscitation that um, likely is good for patient outcomes. Yeah, it took a long time to get that culture. That was a build. That was not something that happened overnight. Yeah, and, and you know, 
to your point, uh, Tina, you know, protocols, this is the thing I say to the fellows and the residents also, like protocols are there to make the easy things easy because we're very good at making easy things hard, but like, there's still going to be hard things and there's still going to be things that you actually require, like your judgment is required. It's, it's not window dressing. Like you actually do have to make these decisions and, and that's okay. Like that's how it's going to be. Yeah. The key is to know when to break the protocol. And that's where the, the difficult decision-making comes uh, to, to identify those moments. Exactly. This has been a real treat for me. I could sit here and listen to y'all forever. Thank you a million times. This has been a pleasure. Uh, no, other than to say thank you for the invitation. It's been, it's been lovely. Tina Palmari, it's great to see you in person. You're definitely a legend in the burn world. So uh, it's, it was awesome to be on a podcast with you. Oh, thank you guys are, you guys rock, man. You're the future. I am so excited <laughs> for the future of us. There was actually something, it was an article somewhere about resuscitating burn patients with beer. And uh, you do see these patients come in like totally wasted and burned and they've been drinking a lot. And actually sometimes they do fine. So maybe the, whoever wrote that thing was onto something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a Christina and I, it doesn't right? matter what the fluid is, just as long as you get right about Exactly. As long as, as long as you're giving it correctly. Let's talk about resuscitating the burn surgeon, maybe with yeah. some beer or wine. <laughs> Thanks so much, Thank you guys. guys. Thank, Thank you, everyone. everyone. For our listeners who are interested in pursuing a career in burn surgery, make sure you check out the East website for a complete list of all the fellowships available. That wraps up another episode of TraumaCast, brought to you by the Educational Resources Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Visit east.org to check out all the great educational and career development resources we have to offer. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs or interviews. If you're searching for cutting-edge science, professional education, networking, and career development, remember, all you need to do is look to the East.